From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Gun violence, education, quality of life, strengthening businesses in Philadelphia. These are some of the topics on the minds of voters as Election Day fast approaches. I sit down separately with Democratic mayoral candidate Sherelle Parker. There will be no place for misuse or abuse of authority. We will fire you first and see you later. And Republican candidate David O. The power you have received from the people comes with great humility. You are given a level of power that should not go to your head. As they make their last rounds telling voters about platforms and why they are the person to take the helm as Philadelphia's 100th mayor. All that straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Cheryl Parker served the Commonwealth as a state representative for 10 years from 2005 to 2015. She then served as Philadelphia's 9th District Council member until she recently stepped away to run for mayor. As she emerged victorious in the crowded primary election, many say the race to the mayor's office against Republican candidate David O won't be a race at all. But Quite the easy walk, as Parker is looked at being the shoe-in for the office in November. But what do voters need to know about Sherelle Parker before casting their ballots? Let's find out as she joins us now. Welcome, Sherelle Parker. Hello, Raquel. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, and thanks for being here. Well, you know, many would say that you've been a little quiet uh, after stepping away, after winning the primary. And I was wondering, uh, after such a wild ride that that primary was, Did you take a step back on purpose? Was that by design? Well, Raquel, uh, I would just have to push back on even the framing of the foundation of that question, because from my viewpoint, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Once we completed what was um, dubbed the uh, most competitive, the most expensive and, quite frankly, the most intense mayoral primary election of my uh, lifetime, we did not stop. Now, do I apologize for taking two weeks, a week to enjoy my my son um, out of state for a bit and another week to take care of some familial obligations? Absolutely not. But I, along with my team, have never gotten off of the campaign trail. Uh, Now, this is it because everything that I do to get things done I don't post on social media or I don't advertise. It's quite true that someone could say, well, we haven't seen everything that Sherelle Parker and or her team uh, has done. Everybody has a right to their own opinion, but in no way, shape or form that I slow down, step back or, um, you know, attempt to relax. Because when you come from the humble beginnings that I come from and you're not accustomed to anybody ever giving you anything in Mm -hmm. life and having to earn it, you don't sit down ever. Noted. Because you are viewed as the likely next mayor of Philadelphia, do you feel like you don't have to fight as hard and that this is all pretty much a done deal? Well, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And I I appreciate that question, Raquel, because you helped me uh, push back on another narrative that I have with a lot of people. And sometimes I've run into people since winning the primary and they'll say, there's Sherelle Parker. She's our mayor elect. 
And I'll have to quickly correct them and say, no, I am Sherelle Parker. I'm thankful for your support, but I am only the Democratic nominee for mayor. I have to win a general election because it is what our democracy calls for Mm -hmm. on November the 7th. And again, I go back to that place in space where when nothing's been given to you in life, you are accustomed to having to earn your place and station. And I'm going to continue trying to earn the support of voters from throughout our city and every neighborhood and zip code imaginable. Absolutely. Ms. Parker, please talk a bit about your background and how all that you have accomplished to this point has prepared you to be the next mayor of Philadelphia. Now, Raquel, that one is, a um, you know, when I've been on the campaign trail, um, I sometimes can see a little frustration on the faces of some folks. I'm talking about now maybe the experts in politics. I can really remember this like during the primary, very vivid, because it was such a large field. Mm-hmm. So a lot of political pundits would be around. And every time I talked about who I am. I talked about my very humble beginnings, that I was raised by my grandparents, um, that my grandmother was a domestic worker, that my mother was a single teenage mother. My biological father uh, did not raise me. Um, I'm a product of the village. That is uncles, aunts, cousins, you know, people in the neighborhood, coaches, teachers. And that's why I feel so compelled to do everything that I possibly can to, like, help move our city forward because so much was given to me. You know, I describe it, I'm a mother to a son who is 11 years old and his name is Langston. And because I'm a certified secondary English teacher from by profession, when I say that people are like, oh, okay, we get it, Langston, right? But it's because of that, that I recognize that so many opportunities were afforded to me because every statistic was against me. And when I think about my son and services and supports that I, and along with his father, we work hard to co-parent. I'm a working single mom. My former husband and I, we work to co-parent our son. And when we think about all the supports and services that we wrap around him, it's what I want for every child in the city of Philadelphia who doesn't come from this perfect nuclear Cosby-like, leave it to Beaver-like uh, uh, background. And that's in essence sort of the wise and, and, and who I am. First generation mm-hmm. college graduate, first generation Ivy League, you know, graduate. I've, people, Sherelle, you're Eisenhower fellow, uh, ACYPL fellow, Chile, Argentina, Australia. Like, wow. Yes, like, wow. Right. But that's why I owe. Raquel, did you hear me? I owe so much for this place and station that I'm in in life. Mentors, they gave me access to an opportunity. That's where that passion and drive, you know, my voice. People sometimes when we're doing a radio interview, so people, somebody somewhere, I can guarantee you because I've heard it before, you know her voice is so intense (laughs) and she speaks so. The conviction, well, you know, it's me. It's, It's how I communicate. I'm going to be my authentic self. But if you felt what I felt, because of the village that had deposited in you the way it deposited in me, mm-hmm. I'm bound to make government work for people. And I'm proud to tell you that I'm good at it. Those humble beginnings that you speak of, and you spoke of it a lot on the campaign trail, um, are those things something that the community as a whole could relate to you better because of your lived experiences? Raquel, you heard me mention all of those political 
pundits and experts who would like be around and in the audience. Well, I had never run a campaign. I don't profess to know what a campaign manager does or any of those machinations or mechanics, but I know how to serve people. And when we were figuring out how I would communicate with the public, um, I said, well, I have to tell people that my grandmother was on welfare to take care of me. She was a domestic worker and there was no union, no Unite Here or SCIU for domestic workers. She cleaned houses for multiple families and many of the matriarchs in my family, right? And they got paid cash under the table is what it was called. That meant my grandmother was taken out of the tax structure. So there was no health care or retirement security for the work that she did. And because she took care of me, she depended on food stamps. And I would, when I'm talking to people, Raquel, now, and I describe the food stamps and the subsidized food, I describe this, this cheese, this five-pound block of cheese that we used to go to the church to get. And I described the food stamps, and I'm like, no, it wasn't a plastic-like credit card. There were food stamps. We picked them up from a place called the 3-2 Center, Sheltonham and Ogons Avenue, and across from a department store called Gimbel's. And... It was colored money in books Mm -hmm. that you took to the supermarket, purple 20s, green 10s, and brown dollars. And I remember the consultant. I won't won't ever name the name unless one day I write a book. Um, They said, well, you know, we're just not sure that, um, that many Philadelphians will be able to identify with what you're describing. And I humbly listened. You know, I wanted to win. You know, I, I, I listen to the experts and you talk about this cheese. Like, do you have to talk about this cheese? This cheese made grilled cheese and the best macaroni and cheese in the world on Sunday. Guess what? Those food stamps and that cheese is humbling for me. It's an experience that forces me to remember that I was there. And that's why I've got to fight so hard to bring other people Along So, yes, Raquel, it bores some people. But the one thing I'll tell you about truth and history, no matter how tired people get of hearing it, it doesn't change. And it's a part of the foundation of who I am. It's why I fight so hard for everything that I do in life. Uh, And it's what helps to keep me going to never forget that. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Gun violence. Yes, ma'am. Continues to plague uh, neighborhoods in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphians all throughout the city just want to feel safe. They want to go to bed and, you know, wake up and knowing that they're living in in a safe neighborhood. I know that the answer to gun violence is a multi-pronged approach. But what specific plans do you have to address this issue in order to make some kind of dent in it so that Philadelphians feel safer? So, one, I appreciate that question. And it allows me to affirm what you heard me talk about in the primary. When I talked about my entire vision for the city, um, it didn't change based on the race, class, or socioeconomic status of the audience. I didn't care if the audience was black, white, Latino, Asian, didn't care. I asked Philadelphians to support me, to give me a chance to work with them 
and making Philadelphia the safest, cleanest, greenest big city in the nation, providing economic opportunity for all. Safety, I talked about being unapologetic about introducing a neighborhood safety and community policing plan. Raquel, not when I decided to run for mayor, but when I had a seat at the table in the city council of Philadelphia as a ninth district councilwoman and as the majority leader, I introduced that plan while some people were calling for us to defund the police. And I said, that's not what people in my neighborhood are saying. They want zero tolerance for any misuse and or abuse of authority from law enforcement, but they want proactive community policing at the same time. Mm -hmm. They deserve, if their lives matter, particularly when we're talking about black and brown people in communities where most of this violence is taking place, if their lives matter, they deserve to see a law enforcement officer who's sworn to protect and serve them, not just when there's a crisis, but walking up and down the street, getting to know the people they're sworn to protect and serve. So that community policing, getting our police department up to its full complement, that's essential. But then there's that other additional holistic approach, smart on policing, where are we with the use of technology? Why don't we have a modern forensics unit? Why aren't we using more AI in the form of drones? And they have shooting technology now. So you can literally through sound, you can hone in on where a shot um, is coming from. The technology that detectives have that they that that is available that they should have access to in order to solve crimes. We need to do that. The DA's office needs to be able to employ the use of that technology as well. But then there's that year round public education. Now, when I said it, because I did explain it, but I wasn't talking about children sitting in a classroom, sitting in a classroom. From, you know, 845 in the morning until 7 o'clock at night. Anyone who described it that way, they were doing it intentionally. I was talking about a traditional school day, but one within the evening, tutoring, homework help is available. What about uh, life sciences, STEM supports and services, teaching our kids how to code, financial literacy, building trades, uh, training, all of that wraparound support that I want my child to have. I want all children in the school district in the city of Philadelphia to have access to it, especially those who come from a place in space like I do, because my grandparents wouldn't have been able to afford to send me to a school that taught financial uh, literacy. But I had access to it. So it's a holistic approach. It's quality of life. You got to remove abandoned cars, Raquel. You've got to, you know, clean and seal vacant properties. You've got to clean commercial quarters. Make them aesthetically appealing. You've got to green them. You've got to pay people to clean around the clock. Work with our sanitation department. And people in Philly, I'll tell you one thing, and I, I don't care who the audience was or what neighborhood it was. People are so damn tired of speeches. They are so tired of people elected to office promising them things that they never see every day in their lives. I didn't run promising to be perfect. I'm the perfect Manchurian candidate. I said, no, Sherelle Parker, me and my authentic self, I'm going to do the best I can with the skill set that I have to change lives and communities that people can see, touch, and feel. And that's what I would want a Parker administration to be able to leave for residents of the city of Philadelphia. I want them to feel different. 
Right, right. And all of those things, they're part of the whole multi-pronged approach to to kind of make a dent in that. So, yeah, I understand that. You, you mentioned community policing. I wanted to talk uh, with you about that. I know you plan on hiring more police officers, 300 or more. Um, wondering what percentage are going to be community police officers and what have you heard in terms of wanting to have more community police, police that know who the people are on the block in their communities? And what special skills would they need to do that? Oh, now, wow, now you, that's a good question. Um, I'll tell you what, those officers have to be there as guardians and not warriors. They really have to be there as a, as partners, part of the fabric of the community. We want them well-trained. We want them to be able to know how to say we need mental and behavioral health support right now on the scene. We want them to be well-trained, but to also have cultural competency and emotional intelligence. We want them to know Philadelphia. And people do want community policing in their neighborhoods. I don't care where I've gone, but they they don't want anybody misusing and abusing their power and authority under the guise of trying to keep people safe. But at the same time, you're discriminating against them and misapplying the law to a particular group of people, um, you know, because of the color of their skin or their race, their socioeconomic status, their sexual identity or orientation. No one wants that, but everyone wants to feel safe, and you can't do that unless you strengthen relationships mm-hmm. between law enforcement and and the community. So I've been gathering a lot of facts and experience and by talking to people, um, and everyone has been saying the same thing. Sherelle, you strengthen community and police relations. One, you've got to have the bodies in the department. You've got to have a cadre of officers who are solely deployed at community policing and they're there proactively. People will begin telling them more things, giving them more information, and they've got to be there for more than policing. We don't want the police officer to have to be the psychiatrist, the therapist, the drug and alcohol counselor. We don't want them to have to do all of that, but we want anybody interfacing with the public to be able to have access to places and spaces that they can plug Philadelphians into, no matter what it is that they do in the city. And we want the same from our police officers as well. So I'm looking forward to the um, to the challenge. Some people have said, you know, you talk this pie in the sky, you know, you you you've forgotten how the police have beat black people down and and beat brown people down, and 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 how are we ever to trust them. That's how we learn to trust again, by working together, by understanding each other's humanity, respecting each other, and making sure that our law enforcement has the best training and technology available. Would you push for more cultural bias training? Oh, definitely. But that has to be built into the overall training. Yeah. That's So when you hear me, I, I, I appreciate that, because when you hear me talk about that cultural competency and emotional uh, intelligence, that's that like implicit bias uh, training that is essential, not just for the city of Philadelphia, but I will argue any institutional structure, because sometimes people can engage in it and they're doing it, you know, and they may not be aware, yeah. uh, you know, of it. And so, no, that's across the board. And the great thing is that I don't care what industry that you work in, what it is that you do. 
Are there bad apples? Have there been bad apples? Absolutely. But the one bad apple doesn't uh, represent the whole. And that's in any industry. I'm not just talking about law enforcement, but that is for our municipal workforce. They work hard, right, trying to keep our city going. How do we find a way to lift them up but motivate, inspire, and encourage in ways that says to Philadelphians, you know, we're trying to do it better. You know, we're not just working harder, we're working smarter. And we're listening to you, the people. This is a ground-up solution to whatever the problem can be. Let's think about cleaning. You know, I'm crazy about street cleaning. You know, and people want to see the results. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Okay. I know you are in favor of stop and frisk or Terry stops. Um, why? And exactly how can this be handled in a constitutional manner? So one, let me just publicly say thank you in front of uh, your listening audience, because thank you for one. What Raquel just did was one. She talked about what the general public at large refers to this tool as stop and frisk. But because you understand how polarizing and what that term means when it has been um, used in a discriminatory fashion by profiling black and brown people and particularly black men who get stopped at disproportionately higher rates than others. The data has informed that. But you then called it what I refer to it as, and that is those Terry stops. What is a Terry stop? A Terry stop is a legal tool that law enforcement has in which if a crime has been committed, is being committed, or will be committed, and they know this because they have just cause or reasonable suspicion, they have the ability to stop you. I have said that I will not take that and any other legal tool away from our law enforcement officers in their efforts to make our public safety and health their number one priority. They should be allowed to do their jobs. If I am elected mayor, our police department will have a mayor who supports their efforts. Listen, while at the same time affirming there will be no place for misuse or abuse of authority. We will fire you first and see you later in the courtroom or in arbitration if you do, but it won't be tolerated in a Parker administration. But I will support the those men and women um, who put their lives on the line to serve us, and which is why we will work extremely hard to find a police commissioner, if I am elected mayor, who will ensure that, one, they have that um, cultural competency, emotional intelligence, that they have knowledge of our city, and they know who we as Philadelphians are, and they know our uh, neighborhoods. And uh, they won't be afraid to make tough decisions because, Raquel, some people are going to call me some names. When I choose a police commissioner who's able to do some of the things you just heard me reference, and let's just talk about Kensington, I want that open-air drug market shut down. I do not want open-air drug use allowed. The people who live there, the children who live there, they're traumatized every day, and that is not normal. Well, we need a police commissioner, along with mental and behavioral health supports, the whole holistic approach we've been talking about. Everybody has to be on the same page. But guess what? When you start implementing it, somebody's going to cry foul. 
They've been doing it already. Sherelle Parker lacks compassion. Sherelle Parker's not empathetic enough. You call me whatever you want. I made a commitment to the people. If they elect me and I win, we're going to do our best to get it done. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. Let's talk about the Sixers arena for a moment. Uh, some say that it's an easy yes because it's going to generate, you know, lots of revenue for the city. Others say not at the expense of Chinatown uh, as the quality of life will change in that area. What are your thoughts of all that you've heard about this proposed plan and the reaction that it's received thus far? So one, I went to school at 11th and Market to Parkway Program High School, 1118 Market Street. So that's directly across the street from the gallery, right? And across the street from Woolworths, where we, my grandmother and I used to go get hot dogs and Wanamakers was down the street. So I'm a lifelong Philadelphian. I say that to let you know, I know this area and I know this city extremely well. And I'll say what I said during the primary. We don't have the luxury of a knee-jerk, no reaction. We're the poorest big city in the nation who needs more economic opportunity for our residents and to put people on a path to self-sufficiency. With that being said, cost-benefit analysis, economic analysis, return on investment, we need to know it all. At the same time, the people who live near this proposed development, they have a right to have a say and how they think this will impact their lives. We will listen to all of it if I am elected. We will also hear from Philadelphians from every corner, because I'll have a mayor's community council in every council district in the city where community organizations and stakeholders and people who live in that particular region or work in that region will be able to let us know what their perspectives are. And then I would gather all of that information and as mayor, I would be required and the people would count on me to make the decision that I believe is in the best interest of our city. But I've heard people say, oh, she's automatically going to be a yes because the building trades or she's automatically going to be a no because the advocacy from the people in Chinatown was so intense that, you know, you can never say yes to something with that kind of opposition. And I just want to say to you that I'm going to be a fact finder. And once I get all of the information needed to make the most informed decision possible, that's what I intend to do. Cheryl Parker, who has been your biggest inspiration in your life? I've had great mentors, but um, my grandmother and the matriarchs in my family, my grandmother had an eighth grade education. She was from Manning, South Carolina, and she raised me. And told me I could be anything and I can do anything and that no one from anywhere else was better than me or more equipped than I was to do whatever I desired to do in life if I was willing to work for it. There would be ups. There would be downs. It wouldn't all be smooth sailing for me. Um, 
in essence that, you know, I'm not born on third base and hit the ball once and act like I made a home run. No. You know where you come from, and I don't care what the odds were against you. But if you want to achieve in this life, you can if you're willing to listen and if you're willing to learn and be a good student. And so when mentors and the village and coaches and teachers and everyone wraps their arms around me, Raquel, to see things in me that I didn't see in myself. I knew my life wasn't normal growing up. Um, You know, that I wanted um, a traditional mom and dad there in my life to take care of me, but my grandmother would not allow where I started in this place um, and in this world, this station in life. She wouldn't allow me to use that as an excuse to say, this is why I can't succeed or I cannot do something. So my grandmother and my Aunt Vi, my Aunt Mary and my Big Mert, who was my great grandmother and every other nameless woman who I know who worked in somebody's house and cleaned somebody else's house and took care of somebody else's children so that they could move forward and have a good life. I stand on their shoulders and they're the people who inspire and motivate and encourage me every time I think it's too tough. Every time I have a down day and get frustrated with the process, I think about them and say, if you give up now, I want you to imagine what they would say to you. Sherelle Parker, Democratic candidate-elect for Mayor of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Part two of our talk with the mayoral candidates, coming up on Bridging Philly. Continue our talk with the mayoral candidates. I'm Bridging Philly. David O is a Republican candidate for mayor of Philadelphia. But does he have a shot? Philadelphia is a Democratic stronghold. As a matter of fact, Democrats have held the mayor's office in Philadelphia since 1952. But is the city ready for a change? And if elected, how will Mr. O handle the key issues facing the city, such as gun violence, homelessness, and affordable housing? Let's find out. David O, welcome to Bridging Philly. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. I'd love to hear more about your background. And of course, if you're elected as mayor of Philadelphia, you would become the first Asian American to do so, which would be very significant for the city. What were some of the early sparks that brought you to politics? Well, my father, um, he was a pastor and he lived through the, the Japanese occupation of Korea, the World War II. And then the Korean War. So he had seen a lot of tragedy, a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, death and things like that. And he arrived in Philadelphia and started the first Korean-American church in Philadelphia in 1953. And I grew up in that household, uh, very much uh, impressed by the work he did, you know, serving uh, kind of like uh, people who didn't fit in. They were uh, immigrants. They were really non-immigrants. They were students uh, in those days. By law, um, Asians could not immigrate to the United States. There were restrictions on, on Asian immigration. But they were mostly students, and they had a lot of hardships. They were not allowed to earn money. You know, They were a fish out of water. And um, at the same time, there was a photograph of my deceased cousin in Ho'o hanging up in our house, and he was beaten to death by 11 youth 
1958, but the family wrote a letter, you know, asking for the most lenient treatment uh, available through the laws of the United States, and they uh, actually got together and raised money for the rehabilitation, education, social guidance, and spiritual guidance of the boys when they were released. That was 1958, and they left the body here in Philadelphia, where it is buried at the um, at Old Pine Cemetery. And on the tombstone, it simply says um, to turn sorrow into Christian purpose. And so uh, part of the letter talks about um, Inho-O and his desire to return to Korea to be a Christian statesman. And that's the only time I ever heard really that term. And uh, it's not that I wanted to go into politics. Um, I actually, growing up in uh, King Sessing, where I live today with my family, my wife and four kids, uh, dealt with a lot of my friends' um, economic and social problems, a lot of crime. I grew up during the gang war years of Philadelphia. My friends were killing each other at the age of 13 and 14. And so I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I had watched a TV show called Perry Mason, mm-hmm. Judd for the Defense. And I was thinking, wow, I'd like to be that guy. That guy is uh, smart, intelligent, and he has the power to, to turn wrong into right. And so my life's desire was actually to be an attorney. And it was a long, difficult road uh, with many, you know, uh, many good turns in the sense that um, uh, I was not someone who was a good student. You know, I was very much a product of my neighborhood. But suffice it to say, I did graduate from law school and started a career in the district attorney's office. I had first done like a free legal services program. But eventually, um, it led me to the point where I wanted to run for public office really as a platform to talk about jobs and education because at the time I was listening to the radio talk about riverboat gambling like it was going to save Philadelphia. And I just thought somebody should say something about this. So I ran thinking that if I could do a good job talking about where jobs come from and how we uh, reform education, that uh, the best I could do was put that into the mainstream discussion. And um, I did lose, but I came very close. And after coming close, um, I got what I call a spanking from the powers that be that tried to put me out of business. And I realized that, you know, merely uh, running and doing well uh, is significant. And I decided to run three times because I figured trying is three times. And I ran a second time four years later, and I won on election day by seven votes, and they called me up the next day to tell me they did not count any of the absentee ballots at the polling places. They weren't even distributed. They were held at the warehouse, and now that they knew what the difference was, they started to open them, and uh, I was made aware while they were opening them, and I lost by 122 absentee ballots. So four years later, I run again with just so much opposition from basically – you know, every power that there is with a huge amount of money spent against me um, and uh, some pretty nasty campaign type uh, things that happened, which is not surprising, but I won. Mm -hmm. And I I remained the winner after the absentee ballot count. And I won the next two um, elections uh, four years later and eight years later. And I was thinking about running uh, a fourth term. I've served three terms. But I really didn't think that I was going to add anything more to the public good. I have done everything that I could. I've introduced bills, resolutions. I've tried to do that, I think, on a very practical basis for what people need. I don't think my bills are at all controversial, but they were all defeated, you know, except for a few. And so I just thought there's no point in being reelected 
to keep introducing, recycling the same bills on property tax, on gun violence, on public education reform, on affordable housing, on all those things. I rather offer the voters a choice because it's time for a change. And I really believe that. There's a point where things have been just, uh, take, they're taken for granted. And that's where we are. Everything is taken for granted and the voice of the people just don't matter anymore. And the government has become a bully. And in many cases, the government is the culprit. In other words, this government breaks the law consistently and constantly in so many areas. Uh, when we talk about like the things people suffer from, people being pushed out of their neighborhoods, that's overtaxation by the city of Philadelphia, completely illegal and wrong. Removing children from families uh, for no reason, or actually even when the Department of Human Services finds that the anonymous allegations, which were never explained to the families, are, are unfounded, but yet three children are removed and sent to different homes. All of these things, you know, the issues with the schools, that's the most obvious thing. We don't know how much of every dollar ends up in a classroom and why is that? So all of these things need to be corrected and it is time to correct it from a system and a government that does not seem to care what it does because there are no consequences to it. So that's how I've ended up here in your studio today. <laughs> okay. So you say that the city is truly ready for a change. Um, you've uh, been up against opposition, and that's something that, of course, does not scare you as we talk about the fact that Democrats have had a grip on this office, the mayoral office, for decades. Um, and a win for you, many say, is a long shot. And so the question is, why you? Why now? And some would even say, why bother? Yeah, it's, it's so important that we change the system right now. And there's a lot of people who will agree with me. They are Democrats. They are progressives. They are socialists. They are conservatives. They are Republicans. They are black. They're white. They're Asian. They're Latino. People really want to change because what they're watching is a government that just seems to be so irresponsible and lacks such common sense, cannot seem to solve problems. And, and I understand why they can't solve problems. Um, it's just too much collusion too much, if you will, corruption. Everything is so padded. And every time you put a member of that team on, they don't want to step on toes. And if you don't step on toes, you'll never solve these problems. For example, we can't get to good education because uh, the money and the contracts and everything is so dished out to insiders. And it's come to the point where the insiders don't care to do a good job. And so if you're not going to step on toes, you're not going to be able to afford um, to reform things and provide better services because if you don't reform things, you're going along with the fact that you're going to keep all the fat on the plate that really needs to be removed. Let me give a quick example. If it costs $100 to fix a pothole, if the pothole becomes the excuse for paying someone because they, they support you politically, then it's $100 for them to fix the pothole and the pothole's fixed for five years. But, but if you want more money, make the pothole, uh, you know, last for only a year. Now you got $500 instead of $100 uh, to fix the pothole. Turn the pothole into three potholes. Now you, now you got $1,500. At a certain point in time, people don't even care to fix the pothole. They're just going to get paid. And so if someone comes along and says, I'm going to fix that pothole, if they are going to go along with the system, it's going to cost you $1,500 and $100, right? So it's now $1,600 to a $100 job, and we just don't have the money. We're the poorest big city in America. Our people right now, and a lot of people listening, 
they don't have the money. And a lot of it, they're frustrated because many people in our poorest neighborhoods, our most crime-ridden neighborhoods, their property values are out of control. The city assessed their, their homes at rates that nobody is going to support. The bank won't give you a mortgage for it. The insurance company won't insure you for it. You can't get a loan for it. Only the government wants the money. And, and when you look at the description of your property, there's no description. They don't know how many bathrooms. They don't know what amenities there. You live in a neighborhood with uh, poorly performing schools, gun violence, murder. People, you know, are dumping things all over your neighborhood. And yet your home has gone like uh, from $150,000 uh, estimated uh, a value to $300,000. And you don't have the money to pay it. You're on a fixed income. You know, all of these things are outrageous, and yet they are tolerated in this city. People just keep reelecting the same people, keep voting for the same machine that's in there, and, and, and they're hoping for someone different to come along, but that person loses to the machine. The machine is very powerful, has a lot of reach, and so now is the time to put someone in who is just not part of that machine, and listen... Uh, I've had well-known battles with the Republican Party of Philadelphia as well, particularly over things like the, the parking authority. And it's not that I am against anybody. It's just that the parking authority was illegally seized uh, by the state legislature to specifically fund public schools. And yet it's not funding public schools. So when someone is asking me to raise property taxes and soda taxes and all these things on people, when there's probably $50 million a year in the parking authority coming off the streets and corners of Philadelphia – that money is supposed to go to the schools, but yet it's sent out all over the state for political favors from powerful people in our state legislature, and that's just plain wrong. They have their own parking authority. They don't need our money. We need our money. And I do fight with other entities like SEPTA. I have tried to uh, withhold money to SEPTA for failure to protect people, to, to provide police uh, for the fact that they have no bid contracts where they have eyes and ears only. That can't help anybody at a time where people are afraid to ride the public transportation system. And some of the things that are done in the city are just plain ridiculous. Uh, I'm sorry. Like what happens is when you can hardly afford to keep your public transportation system running and you're cutting back services, now you're announcing we're going to have free rides for people. How long is that going to last? Why don't you be fiscally responsible? How about community college? We're going to give free tuition, like free community college. No, you're not. You've underfunded community college hundreds of millions of dollars. And by law, the students collectively are only supposed to pay one-third the operating costs. That's 33 and a third percent, but they're paying 55 percent. Why don't you reimburse them? improve the education, make it worthwhile instead of running it into the ground. I was appointed by Ed Rendell, Mayor Rendell, to the Board of Community College. I do understand how it operates. And no, you, you could do that for a couple of years as, as the community college is, is uh, going into debt, but you won't be able to do that for long. So my thing is that just sounds like political pandering to me. When you announce things are free that could only last a couple of years while, while the services continue to decline. And that's a lot of what our city does. It needs a thorough cleaning. And so I would say to people who are agreeing with me, you need a person who just is not concerned about their political future. And I am not. I am just concerned about going in and cleaning up this crooked town so that the people receive the services they deserve. Good education, libraries that have good things in them, rec centers that are well-equipped. And people who care. And we do have to hire 1,300 new police officers, but they need to be supported. 
They need the technology and equipment, and they need better training, and they need to understand from their mayor and their new police commissioner that we are an at-your-service police department. We are not violating anybody's rights. I oppose the return of stop and frisk. It's, I'm a former prosecutor. It does exist, but it arises under circumstances. You cannot send the police out to intentionally go out and violate people's constitutional and civil rights and expect that the community will work with the police. They will not, and it is a big problem. And so all of these things are not a secret to me or anybody else in this town, but when I introduce a resolution on minimum force training for police, it gets defeated in city council. It's not Republicans voting against it, so why is that? Why are all of these things so difficult in our city? And I would say because there is a collusion in our city around who gets to do what and why they get to do it, and, and it's something that most people don't even care about, and I don't care about it either. I'm not a party pleaser. You know, I'm not looking for a future. I don't need to rely on anybody. I just put forth the issues, and, and that's what I'm offering on November 7th. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. When it comes to Philadelphia's uh, gun crisis, talk more about some of the ways that you'd be able to um, help people feel safe in the city. At the end of the day, that's what people just want. They just want to be able to feel safe in their city. Yeah, the first thing is when they call 911, someone needs to pick up the phone. That is the first uh, experience people have in our city. In many of our neighborhoods, when you call 911, good luck. It won't be picked up or maybe you got to call multiple times or maybe 45 minutes later. Not all the times, but too many times. 911 is an emergency call center. It could be someone's having a heart attack. You need an emergency vehicle. There could be a man with a gun breaking into your house. When you pick up that phone, someone needs to be on the other side and they need to send a patrol vehicle uh, right away with intelligence. That's why I'm for drones. Drone will come right out, reconnoiter, get back, see what the situation is so the police don't arrive making matters worse, right? They know what's happening. They know you're there. They know you're in the house, all of those type of things. But you have to start with at your service, not with a list of questions. Before we send the police, we have to know, have you had your COVID shot? Have you have come into contact? You could get police are on their way, now we have a second set of questions. If you're available, it may not be opportune. You might have someone in your house. You don't want to go through answering these questions. But right now, too many times, you got to answer all these questions before they will put it through to a patrol car. Not in every case. What I'm saying is the protocols have to really be developed. Then we need 1,300 new police officers. We are so short. There are sometimes only two patrol cars in an entire district. And... The police are demoralized. Uh, they are not sure what their job is. They don't really want to do their job because they may find themselves disciplined, fired, or prosecuted. But that starts with the top. You know, they have to be supported for the good job they do. They have to understand what their job is. One of the things that I really oppose about what we're doing these days is we're electing uh, 
people like a mayor and like a district attorney, when they get elected, they start deciding to be the legislature of the state and of the federal government. They will decide what laws you can expect us to uh, prosecute, what laws you can expect us to enforce. Like, where does it say that the mayor becoming elected can tell the police not to enforce the law when it comes to, for example, retail theft or drug dealing? And why in this neighborhood and not in that neighborhood? Like, is, is that what you elect a mayor for? No, it's not. The mayor is an administrator, a chief executive. The mayor is not the, the be-all and end-all start reshaping laws. We have a elected process for people to elect state representatives, state senators, Congress people, and city council members, and they are the ones who create the law. The mayor has a hand in enforcing it because only the mayor enforces it through the mayor's administration. But you cannot just start ignoring laws. Like, uh, you know, people will like to know that I, as mayor, whatever my personal views are, will abide by state law. And I will, you know, because I'm not a state legislature. I didn't make those laws, but people have every right to expect me to enforce the laws that are on the books. Your opponent, Sherelle Parker, has been very vocal about stop and frisk or Terry stops. And you did bring that up and Mm -hmm. you something that you don't support. Yes. You don't think that there is a constitutionally responsible way to carry this out? So there is a constitutional um, stop and frisk, and I've worked with it as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. It arises under circumstances, but when people are asking, what are you going to do about uh, gun violence and violent crime? The answer is not, I'm going to bring up stop and frisk, because that's not just something that arises. You're now saying you're going to actively engage the police officers in going into neighborhoods that are high crime areas, and you're going to actively tell them to employ stop and frisk, right? And there is not a way to do that. And again, it's counterproductive. What we want is we want these communities that are high crime areas where they people really, really want the police. But at the same time, they want to be respected. And the police want to be respected as well for being the professionals that they are. That involves restraint. That involves professionalism. That involves a servant's heart. Um, and, and so in order for us to do that, the police must know and abide by the law. And uh, they should know who is in the community. They should know who is uh, the person that they serve and who is the victim and whose rights they are protecting. But they also have a duty to protect the rights of the accused, uh, the perpetrators, um, the criminals. They have a duty to protect those rights as well. And that's why we respect them. And when that happens, and it will happen under my administration, communities that did not want police will want police because it goes hand in hand. When you deploy police, the first thing you're telling people is we care. When you don't deploy police, when they can't find police, when, when children are being shot like every month and there's no police, you're telling these communities you don't care. When they go to school and they're getting harmed while they're in school, teachers and, and students are getting physically harmed or they're, they're, they feel their life is threatened, that means we don't care. So we will deploy police on public transportation, in public gathering places, in schools, in rec centers, and on the streets where there are the most problems. But those police cannot be occupiers. They have to be part of the community. And what I tell people is, look, I mean, if you want to argue with the police, go ahead. Like, you have a right. You have a First Amendment right to tell an officer, you know, uh, listen, you are wrong. You don't know the law. And the answer is not that a police officer pulls a gun on you. That is not how you win arguments. 
Every citizen has a right to have that conversation with officers and good officers, you know, they will control the situation, but they will listen and they will check. And listen, I'm no different. As a council person, you can tell me, hey, I hate your bill. I don't think it's legal, blah, blah, blah. And and I will tell you, no, no, it is legal. I'll, I'll tell you that. But if there's something I can't answer, I'll say, listen, I can't answer that. Let me check into it and I'll get back to you. And if you are right, I will say, listen, you're right. I'm sorry. Uh, and I will make amendments and change that. And if I'm mayor, you'll be able to do the same thing. I think that is a very important part of being a person who has been elected to a position of power. The power you have received from the, the people comes with great humility. You are given a level of power uh, that should not go to your head. And a good way it doesn't go to your head is people yell at you <laughs> and uh, complain to you. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine because who else are they going to yell at um, if not the mayor? Yeah, understand. Talking about the police, your final bill uh, as councilman was an effort to bring about um, new training Yes. Um, for uh, requirements for police officers, but the, that was rejected. Yes. Um, what exactly were those requirements, and would you be inclined to push for those training reforms again? Yes, I will. It was a resolution, so it was non-binding. We can't do bills that tell the mayor how to do the mayor's job. We can make recommendations, and my recommendation is this. Um, when a police officer is facing a life and death situation, their body tells them that they're in greater danger uh, than they may actually be in retrospect. That's true for all of us as human beings. Um, that's how our, our body works. Our mind works to protect its self-defense mechanism. It is training that gives you a level of calmness and objectivity, and that gives you choices. Do I need to jump out the car right now, or can I wait? Do I need to pull my gun out right now, or can I wait? The answer is not that you pull your gun out every time or you might get shot. Yeah, th that's what it is to be a professional. That is what it is to be a public servant. You have to have that judgment. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. Mr. O, you served in the Army National Guard. Yes. And there's... Stories that continue to pop up year after year regarding an alleged or perceived Green Beret misrepresentation. I want to give you a chance to kind of clear the air here and explain this. Did you ever lie about your military experience? No, I've never lied about my military service. I served in a Green Beret unit. The National Guard has two Green Beret units, and actually there's no official um, unit called a Green Beret. It's U.S. Army Special Forces. So when they say uh, special forces referring to the U.S. Army, uh, those are the soldiers that wear the Green Berets. Um, so I served in uh, the 20th Special Forces Group, which is a Green Beret unit. And, uh, you know, when these articles come out saying that I lied about that, um, they are untrue, number one, because I did serve and there is paperwork to prove that. The second thing is this. Uh, if I didn't serve in... Uh, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 20th Special Forces Group, what unit did I serve in? Because you have to serve in a unit. You, you just don't serve in the Army. And uh, my unit, the 20th Special Forces Group, was activated for the Gulf War. So I went down to Fort Bragg, but I was not deployed overseas. Um, the war ended before I was deployed. But during my time there, I received the National Defense Medal and the Army Achievement Medal uh, while being um, uh, activated for Operation Desert Storm. 
The confusion really comes in this play with words. There are three things that are represented by the term Green Beret. One, it's a hat. And in my years of service uh, from uh, 89 to 92, every soldier, every member of the U.S. Army Special Forces wore a Green Beret. Uh, after 93, I believe that changed, but I was not aware of that until like 2011 because, um, I was out of the military. So when you say green beret, you are talking about one, a, a military cover, a hat, um, a beret you put on your head. Number two, you're talking about a group of people, a green beret unit, a special forces unit. But specifically when, um, you talk about a Green Beret, you can also mean uh, a person who is Green Beret qualified or Special Forces qualified, which I was not. So by today's standards, I would not say, and I have never claimed to be a Special Forces qualified soldier. I've never stated that I am a Green Beret. What I have uh, clarified is that at a time where all soldiers wear Green Berets, uh, the term Green Beret did not mean you were Special Forces qualified. That was really distinguished by, at the time, what is a Special Forces tab that you put on your shoulder. You, we either, either say you were a tabbed Green Beret, your 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 Special Forces tabbed, your Special Forces qualified, or your Q course qualified, which is the course that mainly you go through in order to become qualified. And so when an article comes out that says David O. lied about serving in the Green Berets, uh, he implied he served in the Green Berets. He implied he served in the Special Forces. He never served in the Special Forces. That is just uh, untrue. Um, and the fact that it comes out every election, every four years since uh, 2011, is just an indication of what that actually is. Yeah. Okay. And finally, David O., who is your greatest inspiration? My greatest inspiration is... Um, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, people might think that's very corny or somehow not relevant. No, it's absolutely relevant. Um, I believe in God, and I specifically believe um, as a Christian in Jesus Christ. And my father was a pastor, and the person who inspires me most on this earth is my father because I looked at him up close. I saw what he struggled to do. He was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but that makes it all, all the more awesome that an imperfect person coming from where he did, uh, trying to do what he did, he was as true as true can be. He's that old school, you know, um, minister, pastor who believed that the life of poverty was a life of faithfulness. He believed that being uh, dependent upon the blessings of God were something he had to demonstrate as a faith leader. He had to live the life of faith. And he had five kids. <laughs> we were a poor family living in a poor neighborhood, but we somehow all made it. And, um, you know, I often refer to stories in the Bible, which are stories in, by the way, um, the other religions, um, the Islamic faith and the, uh, and the Jewish faith about um, what it is to do God's will. If it is a God who loves um, people and wants to see justice and requires of us to treat people well and to stand up for those who are vulnerable and weak. Um, and I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but on my best day, I will consider that and try to live up to it. David O., Republican candidate for mayor of Philadelphia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.